I want to open today um, with 1 Samuel chapter 8, um, mostly just to whet your appetite, and so you can see um, this is going to get good fast. Are you ready? 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. All right, that's what's coming. Um, just, a, just a little preview, a little trailer, teaser trailer there. Um, first, I've got to finish up Nehemiah, and I want to give you an update report. First, I need to tell you what these are that are in your seats. Paul mentioned them. Um, but one of the, you know, one of the things that um, our you know, young, hip, techie uh, staff members were like, listen, as much as possible, we want to get people to do the pledge stuff online. And, uh, and that's what we want people to do. And I think that's a, that was a great and awesome idea. And I think most of you who are willing to go online and do that kind of thing, I know there's a lot. I've gotten feedback, and I'm right there with you. They're like, I get nervous about stuff like that online. I don't like to click on an email and then type in information because that's usually not right. And so, uh, and by the way, if you have a habit of that, stop that. Don't, don't do that. Don't, that's a bad, that is a bad, the ones from the church I think are usually pretty safe, you know. Anyway, as Paul says, we're not here to stalk you uh, much. So, um, uh, so here's the deal. If you've not been able to pledge yet, but you would like to, um, again, keep in mind the numbers are, that the number that you can put on a pledge card is not something that, that I'm, I'm looking for. That's, that's between you and God. I don't see those numbers. I don't ever know who gives what. Um, very few people on our staff do. There's a couple who have to just for accountability and that's part of their job. But for the most part, that's not something anyone knows. Um, that's not, but, but what I want to see is the unity created by the community coming together to accomplish something. And that includes everyone. Um, that's part of why right here on this pledge card, if you would say, I don't, man, I, I can't do much money or I can't do any money or I can't fathom doing even a few dollars. Uh, I get it. I understand that. I've been there, but there is a note down here that says, as my next faithful, as my faithful next step, I pledge to pray for God's provision. And there, there is no one so poverty stricken that they can't afford to pray. And so what I would ask for you to do is if you say, I cannot give in any other way, I cannot serve in any other way, but what I would love to do is pray that I would ask you to fill out that pledge card and turn it in. This matters. This is, this is not like second best, like, ah, oh, you're on the B team, you're just praying. Like, that is not how the kingdom of heaven works. And that may be how our broken minds think sometimes, but that is not how God's mind, work, God's mind works. So, I would encourage you, please, if you've got that in front of you, if you have not given a pledge yet, that you would take this, fill it out, um, and turn it in. You can drop it in the baskets when we end, when we cast our ballots for the other stuff later. Um, so please, I would love to see that. I'll, I'll make comment more on that. And I also want to give you some, um, a little bit of, uh, I don't know, perspective. When we did this in 2017, in 2017, in March of 2017, was when we did our last rollout of a capital campaign. In fact, it was identical exactly six years ago. March 5th, 2017 was the day that we announced, okay, here's the whole picture. Here's what we've done. Boom, let's go. And on March 5th, 2017, six years ago, which was raising for the uh, grade school building, 
um, we were announcing that day that leaders, though the first to people to pledge, had pledged 1.5 million and that, the, that there was already about a million in place that the church had saved up or had donated whatever to go ahead and give to that. And that was extraordinary. So I want you to have a, the correct perspective because last week what we announced was not 1.5 million, but 2.5 million had already been pledged and not just 1 million in place, but 1.2 million already in place. So understand it, this is like, we are way ahead of where we were in our last capital campaign at the same stage um, already. And again, the sooner that we could get these numbers, these boxes checked, get people working, um, then we don't have to worry about it anymore, which is, which is my goal. Um, so let's do updates today. We'll continue each week to do updates on where we are. And it's one, just a reminder for those who are like, oh, another week went by and I didn't do it. And so, uh, because that would be me um, if it wasn't like part of my job. And so this is a... This is, this is the way that I get it. I told, believe me, everyone who knows me knows like, yeah, he's, he's not making it up. Okay, so here's where we stand right now. Um, so individual pledges. So pledging, pledging families, families who have signed off and pledged is at 150. That's about half where I'd like to see it get or more. So just so you'll know, this is, this is the number I am most prayerful about. I want to see us as a church involved um, and people filling out those pledge cards or, or getting online and doing it whatever to whatever degree God leads you to do. That's one. Um, so next, of that, we've had almost $3 million pledged. Um, twice what we had in 2017 uh, at this time. And so that is a miraculous number. That is a, that is a super amazing provision of God that we're already there. And so what that means is the total towards, as we combine all the numbers and add them together, we get to a little over $4 million. This is fantastic. I mean, that's, that is amazing. It's an amazing number already. And so thank you to everyone who has been doing that. And most importantly, praise God for what he is accomplishing through us already in this process. That, those type of numbers just bog, kind of boggle my they, It's like, big number! That's kind of what my brain does with it. So I'm not, a, I'm not a mathematically oriented person like that. So I'm just, I love it. I love seeing it. That's cool. Here was the other one. So Paul and I this week, I don't know about you, but I tend to forget like what I did yesterday. And so we had to go back and look. Paul and I were digging through old emails and old sermons to kind of figure out like, how did we communicate some of this stuff six years ago? Because it didn't cross any of our minds to like make careful records of all of that because it's not like we were ever going to do it again, right? Um, so sorry about that. But the, um, here's what we discovered in June of 2018. So over a year later, like 13, 14 months later, here's what I found in a sermon so June of 2018, that was before COVID. So like none of us remember any of that. Like that was, that was BC. Hey, that works. Uh, it was before COVID. Um, here's what's wild. So this was, this was a, over a year after that initial kickoff date. We have received in total 3.2 million in pledges and about 1.5 has already come in. So a year in, we were at about the same place we are now on week two. Um, and we will continue to take pledges. So we will continue to take pledges um, until we get to something uh, closer to all of us in this together or until we hit those uh, magic building numbers, whatever those end up being. Here's what I wrote back then in 2018. Allegedly, I actually copied and pasted from my sermon that day. Ready? Ready for this? Allegedly, John D. Rockefeller once told the Bible translator Edgar Goodspeed, Dr. Goodspeed, if a man show me how I can do something good with my money, I think he is doing me a favor. Okay, if that's the case, then I have some financial advice. Here's what I wrote. 
I have an idea for how you can do something good with your money. Here's my advice. I wrote this. Feel free to write this down if you want to. (laughs) Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. I said, I wrote it. I didn't say I came up with it. I just can't copy it. Um, so in other words, invest in your wife and in your husband. They are eternal. God has called you to it. They are his sons and daughters. Invest in your children and in other people's children. They are eternal. And God requires of us our investment in them. They are his. Invest in what God is doing in them and in one another and in us. Invest in forever. Because when you invest in forever, the interest rate doesn't really matter. If you think giving to this endeavor that we're talking about will accomplish good things in the kingdom and will work as an investment in eternity, then I invite you to be a part of it. I believe it is so. So my hope is for 100% of membership involvement. That's what I wrote then. And I would repeat that now. As I've said, I don't think he will ever be impressed with our amounts. How could he be? But he appreciates our devotion and recognizes our faithfulness. He calls for our unity. Give two pennies, but what an amazing start it would be to have 100% participation in the Spirit in this. So, now back to modern times. This is what it means to be a member of his body. If you want to serve here, you join this local body and we serve together. In fact, we have a special group of people within the church that we have designated as models of service, examples of service. Um, I've learned over the years as a counselor that for many people, especially in this part of the world, sadly, the word deacon often is a trigger word. Um, And so the people hear the word deacon and what they think of, it's amazing how many times I hear a story that starts with someone's abusive dad or abusive family member or their abusive grandfather, and it starts with, he was a deacon in his church. And, and that should not be. And we know that in our hearts. That's why it's said that way, right? He was a deacon in his church, but behind closed doors, he was a monster. Like, that's, that's absolutely inappropriate and uncalled for. Um, in, at South Spring, you need, if you don't know this, the word, we, well, it's, I, I, the first service I said, at South Spring, this is the way I said it, and it's kind of funny now, looking back on it. At South Spring, what deacons means is servant. Now, the reason that's funny is because that's not a South Spring thing, that's a Greek thing. In Greek, deacon means servant. We didn't come up with that. Deacon means servant. That's what it means. And so what we all, as someone might go, you might immediately say, well, gosh, I've been coming around here for a while. I thought everyone was supposed to serve. I thought every member was a minister. Good catch. You're exactly right. So then what's the role of the deacons? Those who are assigned and ordained deacons is to be examples of what service looks like. So that if you come to me and say, I'm thinking about serving in the church, what does that look like? I could say, look at, well, why don't you raise your hands? I want my deacons to, South Spring deacons, raise your hands up high where everybody can see. So when you're saying, I want to serve, what does it look like to serve in this church? There you go. Those are are the people you're looking to. You look around, you go, what are they doing? I need to copy and model to serve the way they do. That's what, that's the role, that's that key role is to be an example, a model of service People who lead the rest of us, challenge the rest of us in how they serve. This is who we are. We are servants, and so some of us lead in that. Um, Most of the rest of the book of Nehemiah, when we get to it, 7 through 13, are about these very kind of issues. 
Who are those who lead us? Who guide us? Who are lists of people? Who are, uh, whose responsibilities are what? Talking about numbers, locations, and quoting passages from the law, which becomes their source of guidance. In fact, this is so cool. There is now this community. As I said, what stood out to me this time about studying Nehemiah was not the nature of the building of the wall, but the nature of the building of the community that resulted in a wall. And, and that has been a great comfort to my heart. Um, this is a community now of workers, ministers, investors, shepherds, that we think in those terms, those shepherding terms, not a possessiveness term, but shepherding terms, my town, my church, my family, my wall. It's so hard to feel that way unless you're actually invested in it. You invest in it, you invest prayer and time and service and money, and you begin to think of it in terms of us, not you. Um, it, it is fascinating to me when I still hear sometimes people have been in the church, sometimes even members for a long time, and they will say, you know what, I love what you do with. And I'm like, stop. You mean you love what we do with? This, that's the key message here. This is why I want our students to go to camp. That's why I, want our, I, I love when our students do that. It's, it's a vital thing for students to be able to go to camp when they can, because that's where they have the experiences that let them know, I'm one of these I fit in here. I belong here. And it's hard to feel that as much when you miss those key moments, when you miss the denials and you miss the camps and you miss the trips. Because if you're not there, you're not there when the bus breaks down and everyone gets sick and, and is, you know, thrown up all over the bus in the middle of the night. Like, and you don't want to miss that, <laughs> right? You're like, yes, no, you don't. Because those are the stories students tell for years and years and years. That's what makes us part of this. Um, for years, our, our students identified with our first time to Soto, to the Shepherd of the Ozark camp in, our, in Arkansas. The first trip we went, we get up there and it rained solid nonstop for the first half of camp. Like we get there, it starts downpouring and it never stops for three. Now, what made it stop raining is that we had shirts made called Camp Noah that was waiting for the kids when they got back. It just showed a guy with an umbrella and an ark. And, and uh, of course, as soon as we did that, then it stopped raining for the rest of the time. But it was like the kids identified with like, oh, yeah, that was the year that it rained the whole trip. That was important to be there. Or that was also the year that a lot of our students found out that in real life, rivers don't make circles. Um, I know, Right. That it turns out when you get in a river, in a, in a little raft, a real river, not one at a park, but a real one, it just keeps going. You go to the ocean if you stay in long enough. We had several students who got to walk back up river several miles after realizing, I don't think this makes a circle. <laughs> right? Like, you guys need to get out a little more, right? A little less of the video games, a little more the real nature. Um, and, and we still talk about that. I mean, here I am still talking about it, right? It's a great story. We need those experiences together. It's why I would challenge you, encourage you, with, go to Harabakoa with your family. Go there. Experience what it means to be in the Dominican Republic and see how our church has invested there over the last three decades. When, when you get to go and you come back and you get to tell the stories together, if you can afford and figure out how to afford it, go to Israel with our church and, and you come back with the stories and you, you make these connections and, you, and you, the, the identity, our identity begins to change. It's why we invest in foster ministry. This is who we are. 
We're part of this. When we babysit and, and foster and adopt and take care of and offer, offer respite care and serve and give with kids from tough places in the children's ministry, when we're a part of all that, it, when we sit down over lunch, it gives us this amazing connection we can talk about that other people don't connect with. We are equipping the next generation. <clears throat> Listen, I, I don't think this is, this is not from a position of pride, but humility. This is a great church. This is a great people. This is a great group of people to do church with. Um, I, I love this church. If you want to hear or sing or be invited into and live in the gospel with a bunch of other broken people, you have found the right place. We're, this, is, this is who we are. It's what we do. We, we face hardships together. Um, and so I know there are so many hardships going on in our church. There's so much struggle and so much suffering of all different types. I want to specifically pray for just a second again for two of those. One for little Christopher Lim, who's still in Dallas, um, whose heart's not functioning properly. But here's what's wild. For the first time since the first surgery, this last week the report was they think his heart is actually improving a little bit, and they may be able to avoid the transplant. This is a miracle that God is doing in our midst, and we will continue to pray for that. I don't know what's going to happen. Yes. And I don't know what, I mean, I'm scared to tell you that. Like it, literally the, the, the skeptic in me struggles with even talking about that. Um, some of you know that uh, uh, Michael Arrington got taken to Dallas in the middle of the night the other night because his, his, he had pneumonia and a blood infection suddenly out of nowhere. And that's, I mean, when you got it, what, what's Michael, 10, 11 years old, when you've got a kid that age and suddenly they get that sick overnight and you got to get them. So I want to pray for them. But here's what I also want you to hear. Like we're we're not just praying for them. We're going to pray for them because they're on staff and they're right on the forefront of my mind. But I know there's so many in here who need this prayer. And so we're praying for all of us in this second. Join me. Father, we all have things that come to mind immediately. The struggles our families are facing and the challenges and the difficulties. Lord, this world is a hard place. And especially when we want to love, we're going to get punished for it in this world. When we seek to reach out just like your son did, the world has a thorn to give us back and a cross to respond with. This is a hard place. Thank God, we need your comfort and we need your care. We need your ultimate rescue and we also need your rescue in the moment. We hope in the future rescue that we all can experience through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, whose name we glorify. And it's also in his name we ask that you would do mighty works now that we could experience and see it. Our, you don't need it, but our faith needs to see it. So Lord, I pray that you would, you would show growth and progress and change and healing for all of us. Particularly, Lord, I ask for little Christopher that you would heal his heart. We'll know it was you. There will be no doubt in our minds. No matter how, how rough our faith is, we'll know it was you. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to heal up um, Michael, that he will get better and better over the next few days. He will be able to come home and get back to the abundant life that he has. Lord, I thank you for all of these, for all of the requests that we've got. And there's so many going on, and you know them all, and I pray that you would speak loudly, clearly, boldly, gracefully, and powerfully into all of these situations. Through your son's magnificent name, we ask it all. Amen. All right, continuing on. So, the people found this out. The Jewish people, the Israeli people found this out. And, and they're, they're, they are held together by it. They are on board with what they did. Now people, now in a community, gather together literally, and amazing things start happening. 
the, maybe the most significant and most important, um, if, if you're like me and you grew up seeing the Bible kind of like a textbook written in these weird little books and chapters and probably edited by one, by one little editing team and they put a little glossary in the back and, and the, the theme was always the same and all that kind of stuff. If you were raised with that or like in a storybook, I, I, I am no longer embarrassed to say that for years I thought there were at least three Isaacs in the Bible. There was a little boy named Isaac, and then there was a man named Isaac, and then there was a grandpa named Isaac. And I, it was years before I discovered they're all the same dude. It's just his life. Like, I didn't know that for a long time because of the way I was taught in these stories, which is great. But what that can do for us is we forget to, to cross-reference things and connect things. And so the, during the time of Nehemiah, we have a king in Israel. His name is Josiah. And Josiah is a good king, but he's a good king who has no idea what he's doing because no one has any idea what they're doing. Their capital city is in ruins. And Nehemiah has shown up and he's trying to build the wall and Josiah is there and he's trying to get the people to follow God. And Ezra is there, the prophet, and he's trying to get people to follow God after the exile. And they're putting these things together and we get this great, beautiful moment in 2 Kings that, that, that begins to connect the pieces. In 2 Kings chapter 22... So what happens is they get all these resources, they start putting resources in the hands of workmen to start doing things. And one of the things they start doing is they're going to clear the temple mount and rebuild the temple. So we've talked about this was part of the behind the scenes of what's going on. We got to build a wall because if we build a temple and we don't build a wall, people are just going to come in and knock the temple down again. So verse five, let it, meaning all this resources, be given into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. That is the carpenters, the builders, the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarrying stone to repair the house. So what happens? They start clearing the ground to rebuild God's temple there in Jerusalem. And in verse 8, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And they take it to Josiah, and he reads it. And he is struck to tears the fact that God has revealed his word to them. Again, we don't know how long it had been since they had seen God's word. Maybe decades since they had seen it. The king is struck to tears. The people are all called together. The prophet Ezra stands up in front of all the people and begins to read the books of the law to the people. And after decades for many of them, they hear it for the first time. And where we read about that happening is in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9. On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So they've been hearing, the God, they've been hearing um, God's law read out loud to them, and they come back, and they're now like in utter despair. We, we are so horrible sinners. We have, we have broken all of God's instructions and his commandments. We, we're, we're at a place of, of, of great repentance and and despair here in verse 1. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and for another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And this becomes the pattern. The people confess, they consecrate themselves, they name their leaders, they immediately begin to obey whatever they're instructed to do. Literally, they're in the midst of learning about it, and at some point they get up and they, they're reading this section, and they read a section and discover, wait a minute, we're supposed to be having a feast now. 
Like we're supposed to be having a feast right now. Like it's, where it's commanded, they had forgotten about this feast. They're now in ashes and sackcloth, and they're just horrified. And Ezra and Nehemiah and Josiah have to come to the people like, hey, 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 stop the, stop the mourning. We're supposed to be feasting. Go home and change and start setting up booths and start celebrating. We've got to celebrate. We're mourning because of our own, of, of who we are. But we have this fast, this, this, this uh, feast going on that reminds us whose we are and that we need to celebrate. And so they immediately do it. What a cool thing it would be, by the way, if we heard God's word and instantly changed our behavior. How cool would that be? If we said, this is the God's word, we listen to it, we submit ourselves to it, and when it calls us to do something, we immediately confess, we immediately turn around, and we start doing whatever it says. Like, I just need to do what it says. It begins to change their identity together, who we are because of all of this. It isn't just that God's giving them a list of instructions, and they get that. They get that the law is not just a list of instructions. It is an identifier. This is who you are. You're mine. And as mine, here's what this means. And now they've gotten to experience it. They have this community. One of my favorite examples of this, when we begin to experience these things together, um, I, let's do a quick nerd check. All the Tolkien fans in the room, you see a show of hands? Excellent. All right, good. Um, I actually got, a, I got at least one guy at last service was like, pulling up and showing off his, you know, Minas Tirith tattoo, like, I'm a fan. Um, so here's the deal. Maybe one of my favorite books in all of literature is The Hobbit. Um, the Hobbit is a brilliantly written book. Um, and if you haven't read it as an adult, or it's been a while, I encourage you to go back and read it again and, and re-experience actually the, the brilliance of the story. In The Hobbit, which is largely an identity story, the Hobbit himself, the main character, is so insignificant that he isn't the introduction of the story. His house is. The hole in the ground that he lives in is how the story begins. Because Bilbo is that insignificant a character. Um, then he goes through this whole story. This whole story is told. He makes friends. He has a mentor. He develops these close relationships. He faces life and death with them. They're challenged by all these things. And in the end, he then goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the great and mighty Smog the great dragon who he faces in the dragon's horde. And in that conversation, Smog asks him the question, who are you and where do you come from? And Bilbo's answer is not, well, I mean, I'm just a hobbit, living a hole in the ground, the end, right? That's his, his identity has changed from the introduction in chapter one to this list. Um, I am from under the hill and under hills and over hills, my paths have led and through the air. I am he who walks unseen, clue finder, web cutter, stinging fly. I was chosen for the lucky number, ring winner, luck wearer, barrel rider. And the list goes on and on as he lists these things. He who drowns his friends and brings them back to life. Like it is a, it's a great list that he gives. And Tolkien is showing you that this person's identity has changed. It's not just they've got a list of activity under their belt. Oh, I did this, I did this, I did this. No, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a bucket list. It's a life he has developed a life and an identity connected to all this. And in Nehemiah, we see that. This story is linked to all the people who are there now. We formed this new identity. We were scattered, defeated, homeless, and exiles. Now we are wall builders. We're a band of brothers and sisters, of families who came together. We are a faithful few, and we didn't give up even when we should have. Now God's word tells them, now you're not just you. You are mine. You are people who I have claimed this powerful community. And when we went through a few years ago, a series where I wanted to unpack what the church is, I realized it could be summarized in three words. We are his. That's what, a church, that's what the church is. Our identity is in him. 
politics, ethnicity, gender, nationality, all the rest, these can describe us and they matter, but only he can define us. We're about to see a nation in 1 Samuel that has lost its identity. It's going through identity crisis. Samuel tried to remind them once again their identity is in God alone, but they want something else. They're trying to copy the identity of others rather than settle into the identity that God has given them. How sad for a nation set aside by God to be a blessing to others to instead start copying others on who they're going to be. They're like humans creating the image of God, trying to create images of gods to worship. How backwards that is. And I want you to stop and think about how foolish as a race we can be. I want you to think about the last time the Jewish people had had a king. When was the last time that the Jewish people, the Israelites, had had a king? And what was his title? Anybody? Pharaoh. The last time the people of Israel had a king was a man named Pharaoh. And these people want a king. They want an emperor. They want their own Pharaoh. What is it with us as a race that we are so dumb? That we would, we would jump into the same thing over and over again. We've seen it fail. This time we'll do it right, though, right? That's just because I haven't tried it yet. That's the only problem. Thanks be to God for the examples of Nehemiah, the men and women like him all throughout Scripture, faithful and true. He is truly one of the greatest leaders in all of history, in my opinion, of literature and history. I'm humbled every time I read accounts of him. His incredible ability to integrate principles and mindsets that are typically treated as competitive is so impressive to me. He is a thinker and a doer, and he surrounds himself with thinking doers. He integrates prayer and personal action, serving from the front lines and working behind the scenes. He integrates personal sacrifice and corporate challenges, quiet contemplation and public leadership. He integrates developing a small team of a trustworthy few and inspiring the crowds. He integrates boldness and caution, confidence and humility, and faith and diligence. What an amazing resume this guy has. What a great example. We're about to jump into the, te- the, the story of a man named Saul, who is going to be Israel's first pharaoh, um, his, their first king. Saul will have moments in the sun, but he will generally somehow manage to integrate all of the worst traits of a leader. He will somehow be totally lost all the time and yet always making good time. Somehow he will be quick to anger and yet passive and even passive aggressive. He will somehow be very impatient and still afraid to act, paranoid and yet naive, insecure and yet filled with pride. In other words, he's one of us. But hey, at least he's tall and handsome. Am I right? This week in our Tuesday morning podcast meeting that we called the in-between, um, Colson made the comment, Saul is kind of a mirror. Yeah, I know. That's not fun to hear, huh? That's no good. So he told Colson not to talk anymore. Like, don't be saying, don't be saying stuff like that. Um, Saul is a mirror. He's a mirror for Israel, and he's a mirror for us. Um, after Samuel and Nehemiah, are we ready to see ourselves in Saul? I hope so. We'll find out together. First, how did we get here? How do we get to the mirror? First Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. There were judges in, e- in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old. 
and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Uh, that'll be in a few years, I'll have to assign a work team whose job is to come periodically tell me, behold, you are old. <laughs> he's, he's apparently not aware of it. Do you see how the people of Israel have lost themselves? Um, we actually don't know how long Samuel was the judge and the priest and the prophet of Israel. Um, he transitions over into some of those. However, as inspiring a figure, he was a true Christ figure. In 1 Samuel 3, 19 and 20, if you'll remember, here's how Samuel was described. And Samuel grew and, his Lord, and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And yet here they are. The failure of Samuel's sons has motivated them. Now, why did Samuel's sons fail? Man, the Bible gives us essentially nothing. Samuel's sons have turned out more like Eli's sons than like Samuel. How does that happen? We really don't know. We could guess. We could probably spend an hour here guessing, um, especially as many therapists are in the room. We could probably spend time going like, what do we think happened? What are the patterns here? What do we think is the story? What happens when, um, when a dad spends too much time at work? Maybe he was being, maybe he was misemphasizing being a prophet and being a priest and being a judge. Maybe he was spending too much time and energy there where he would feel like he could be successful and not enough time with his boys. But I don't know that. Maybe he was a great dad. Maybe he was an awesome dad. And these two boys just rebelled against what their father had taught them and rebelled against what their father had shown them. Maybe he didn't know the first thing about being a dad because who was his dad? Eli? I mean, his biological father apparently only saw him once or twice a year at the most. So where was he learning all those type of skills? We don't know. Maybe some of this is all explained in a, some way, but we don't know what it is. What we know is that there's been a failure, and the failure is that, is that Samuel's sons are immoral, more like Eli's sons. So now the people of Israel want their own king. <clears throat> Again, I think that's fascinating. Here is their theory. Here's how their thinking works. Humans have failed us yet again. So let's pick one and give them more power. Isn't that wild? What is, what is wrong with us? The leaders are failing us, so let's give them more power. That ought to solve the problem. We want to give a different human more power over us. That will, be, that will fix the issue. But lest you think this is a surprise to God, we go back several hundred years and look at what Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 17, what God saw coming. I love that he actually quotes them 700 years before they say it. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, quote, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. He warned them they're going to do this and they still do it. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose from one among your brothers. You set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner who is not your brother. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire excessive silver and gold. Verse 18, maybe most potently, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. If that last thing happens, we have no record of it. If Saul ever writes down what he's supposed to write down of the law, it doesn't say. If David was supposed to, it doesn't say. If Solomon was supposed to, it doesn't say. None of the others. And by the time we get to Solomon, king number three, these are all three being so flagrantly, passionately violated by a king with a thousand wives, with entire cities full of horses, many of them from Egypt, 
And with such, a, with such an economy that silver is worth the same amount of stone, you see that the violation of this is, is unbelievably, and it's offensive. Soon you will get, you really want this? Soon we'll get Samuel's warning, his clear warning to the people, but instead we get this brilliant lesson that I've got to comment on before we wrap up today. When Samuel here, when the people come to Samuel and say, give us a king, Samuel is angry. He's angered by this. 1 Samuel 8, 6 through 9 the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give, the, give a king to judge us. And so what is Samuel's response in his anger? And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. He is so angry that he prayed. What a great lesson that is, huh? Wouldn't that be great? Man, I am just so angry. I'm going to have to pray. And the Lord said to Samuel, notice how you can already imagine what Samuel's response is going to be. No, I'm not going to give you a king and God's going to smite you. And it's a good thing he checks in with God because God has a different attitude. The Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say for you. For they've not rejected you, they've rejected me. That's intriguing because I don't think they think they're rejecting God. And God doesn't say they're rejecting him entirely. What he says is they're rejecting me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, and now they're doing this too to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. I love that when God tells his prophets, warn them. They're not going to listen, but warn them. When it happens, they'll have no one to blame but themselves. Samuel, this may not be your first rodeo. This may be your first rodeo, but it isn't mine. I knew this was coming. I was prepared for this. Had a chapter written about it way back in Deuteronomy. The people think they're rejecting God? Probably not. But what are the consequences of rejecting God as king? See, when we reject God as king, we subject ourselves to human royalty and sovereignty. And we are endlessly enthralled by the thought of human royalty and sovereignty, aren't we? How does this book get to be a leading book in America? And the answer is because we are enthralled with the concept of human royalty and sovereignty. Why do we all stop when a queen of England dies and, and we have a funeral? Lots of respect about her for sure. And yet there's still something in us that is drawn to this. When we subject ourselves to human royalty and human sovereignty, another term for that is tyranny. And here's the deal. At the individual spiritual level, when we reject God as king, the person that we put on the throne that we think we're putting on the throne, our pathetic little embarrassing plastic throne with a little horn that goes beep, beep, that's our idea. We set ourselves in that throne, and we're who we put there, and then the tyranny we deal with is the tyranny of self. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be enslaved by any of you. I sure don't want to be enslaved by me. I'm a tyrant, and I can't trust myself to be king in my own life. It is a great reminder. When was the last time you acknowledged God as king? I love the medieval picture um, that we have um, as well of swearing fealty to God of setting him as king first. He is the ultimate authority, and we swear our fealty to him. We bend our knee, and we bow our neck to him, not to ourselves, not to our own emotions, not to our own anger, not to our own temper. We are so angry that it causes us to pray. And we're so heartbroken that we pray. And we're so sad that we pray. And we're so anxious that we pray. And we're so, this is our, we go to him because he's the one who's supposed to wield us, not us. My life is yours. I reserve nothing back. And what we're doing is we're acknowledging God as king. We're not making him king. I know that language is common in church. You need to make Jesus Lord of your life. Newsflash. Jesus is the Lord of your life. 
You don't make him anything. When we, the concept of us crowning him is that we acknowledge that he is king. And we acknowledge it. We, we confess it. We agree with him that he's king. We bend the knee. We bow the neck. My life is yours. Or are you still in a position? Are we still in a position of moderating? King over this and that, but not this and that. Maybe we're negotiating. I'll make you king if you'll let me keep this. Or I'll make you king if you'll let me. One, you're not making him king. Second, you don't negotiate like that. It's all yours. Do with it as you will. Burn it down if that's your choice. You are king. I am not. It's vitally important for us to acknowledge we all need a king, and it doesn't need to be a human, and it sure doesn't need to be us. So with that thought, the preparation to repent before that, if you would stand with me. And as we take this time and a moment to gather, to invite, you can come up to the front and pray. You can pray over in the corner with somebody if you would prefer to do that. You can sing. Whatever it is that God lays on your heart to do during this time of invitation. If you've been through our Welcome Home team and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family, you can also do that during the time of invitation. We had four families join during the first service, which is so fun. And we'd love for you to get a chance to do that. And, uh, and so we invite you, that's what the invitation is, we invite you to respond as the Spirit leads. Let me get us going with this passage. I'm also reading from Psalm 47. Um, sing praises to the Lord, sing praises, sing praises to our King Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. The very words of God.